listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I want to invite you in your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Go ahead and mark verses 18 through 22. And also, it would be helpful to go to Genesis 6 and put a finger there, put a piece of paper. We're going to be going kind of back and forth today. But I wished I had planned my calendar better because I really should have been gone maybe this week because of the passage. I'm telling you, today's passage, it is filled with beauty and it is saturated with mystery. Uh, This passage today will begin with one of the most profound statements in the New Testament about the doctrine of the atonement. And then it will end with one of the most hope-filled passages about Jesus reigning as king. But in the middle is the most debated section in all of the New Testament. In fact, Martin Luther, a man that... Many still read today, and he's often quoted, lived 500 or even 500 years after his death, even translated the Bible into German, so he knew a lot. When he got to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, this is what he says. A wonderful text it is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. And this is how mysterious this passage is going to be today. In fact, I will say some things, I'll put out some things, and you're going to think I have turned to a sci-fi novel. I mean, it is really difficult. So this morning, we have some very heavy lifting to do. So what we're going to do, we're going to read this passage. I will then pray, asking the Holy Spirit to be with us, to enlighten us, to teach us this morning. We'll look at that beginning passage with such incredible depth about the atonement. We will then walk through that difficult section. I'll explain some interpretations. I'll even be crazy enough to tell you what I think it might mean. And then we will close with the beautiful uh, picture of Jesus reigning as king. And so in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, this is how it reads. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, the angels, the authorities, and the powers being subject to Him. Let us pray. Father, this morning we are thankful for Your truth. We're thankful for Your Word We stand on the promises that it is there, every single word is there and is good for us, for teaching, for correcting, for reproof, for training, that every word is meaningful, every word is important. And 
Father, this morning we need you greatly in this passage. It is covered in such beauty and such depth. But Father, there's also a lot of mystery here. And so Father, we ask your spirit would be with us this morning. That truth would stand and anything false would fall on deaf ears this morning. So teach us, help us to have receptive hearts and minds this morning. And may we walk away with a greater love for you and your son and your spirit. And that we would uh, go away changed. And it is in your son's name and by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Alright, so let's begin with the beautiful passage of the atonement. In verse 18, once again it says this, For Christ also suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So this verse is one of the most complete pictures we have of Jesus in reference to what is often called the substitutionary atonement. Some big words with some powerful meanings. And this is the doctrine or the belief that is at the heart of what is true biblical Christianity. Without this truth, there would be no salvation and no Christianity. So what does the idea of substitutionary atonement mean And why is it important? Well, substitutionary atonement, I like to think of it this way. I like to think of it as the great exchange. And the substitutionary atonement is the belief that Jesus came and he lived the life that you should have lived. And then he died the death that you should have died. Meaning that he was perfectly obedient to the Father on your behalf. And he paid the penalty, the price of being completely separated by God. So he does both. So, in fact, he he erases all of our negative, meaning he takes all of our sin as if it was his. He puts it on himself as if he had committed every sin that you had committed. But then he gives you every positive that he earned for you. You could not do. In fact, we could never do enough to erase our sins, but we could never do enough to merit being in God's presence. And Jesus does both. He takes upon himself our sins and he gives us his perfect obedience. And so to have salvation, we need these two things. To have our sins paid for, but then to perfectly obey God. And this substitutionary atonement says that Jesus has done both of them. He takes your sins, but then he perfectly obeyed and he turns around and gives that to you. So I want you to notice there are four major things that Peter says about this idea of substitutionary atonement in verse 18. The first thing, if you underline, if you take notes, it's important to see that Christ suffered once for sins. So why is that important? Well, it means that Jesus completely paid the penalty for humanity's sin. Underneath the old system, in the Old Testament of the sacrifices, it was one that you had to keep going to the temple over and over and over again. And so Peter reminds us that Jesus pays once, and it is enough. And then he says this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. The one that did not need salvation died for those that did. The perfect gave all for the unperfect. The obedient laid down his life for the disobedient, and the pure heart went to the cross for the wicked hearted. That there was the righteous that came For us, the unrighteous. 
And then he answers the question, why did Jesus do all of this? And I'm often asked, why did Jesus come? We hear things, and, and we have a lot of things that run through our head, but it says this is why Jesus came, that he might bring us to God, that he came to make that possible, meaning of all of all the human needs that are out there, food, water, shelter, belonging, that the most important need in your life is reconciliation with God. And he says that Jesus brings us to our greatest need. He brings us to God. And then the fourth one, he says, death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Read one commentator this today or last week that said, there are 180 different combinations just for that part of the verse. So, I mean, that's like sonic drinks, you know. You can do all these combinations. But when you're talking about what does he mean, death in the flesh but alive in the spirit. Man, I could spend all morning giving you all the ideas that could be behind that thought. But this is what I want us to take away. <coughs> what we know is that Jesus physically died. He came as a man. We'll talk about that next week. He died in a physical body. He took on humanity, but made alive in the spirit. Now, don't let it confuse you. He was physically raised from the dead. So I think it's what he's saying is that, yes, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He was made alive by the spirit, and his spirit still lives in each and every believer. His spirit is still alive. So this is what I've been thinking this week is, verse 18, the challenge is this, to take and memorize that verse. Take and memorize 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and try to think of it often. Walk through each word. Contemplate what each word means. Commit it to memory. All right, so now, put on your weight belt. We're about to do some heavy lifting. Look at verse 19. So he sets it up, Jesus and his substitutionary atonement, what he has done, he died in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit to bring us to God, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now it is hard to believe that 11 English ver words can cause such great debate. Because here's what we have to answer. Talking of Jesus, but where did he go? What did he proclaim and who are the spirits that he proclaimed them to? And where's this prison? So here's, uh, let me give you three quick interpretations, and I'll tell you which one I think Peter is meaning. The first one says this, that these verses are saying that between Jesus' death and his resurrection, he went to Hades to offer people who lived before the flood a second chance of salvation. People have thought, what happens to people before Jesus, there has to be a way of salvation for them. If it all goes through Jesus, then this is what Jesus did. He goes to them and he gives them a second chance at salvation. Or it could often be referred to as the idea, the thought of purgatory. Now, <coughs> however, this interpretation has no scriptural support whatsoever. It is logic, it is reason, it's trying to answer questions. So nowhere else in the Bible is that thought ever even given. So the leadership of Bethel and myself, we do not affirm that that's what Peter is talking about. But number two, it's the view that holds that Jesus 
spoke to the people before the flood through Noah. That Noah was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. That Jesus spoke through Noah and that Noah spoke and proclaimed the truth for 120 years. In fact, for 120 years he's building the ark and he is proclaiming, he is calling out to people to turn from their wickedness. And so this second view says that the spirits are the spirits of the humans that did not respond to Jesus' message through Noah. And the prison is the place where they are being held for final judgment, where God will come at the end of the age and finally bring that to pass. And listen, I, I really, I could get behind that view. I, I think that view could be supported. I do believe that Noah was a type of Christ. In fact, in fact, I preached that last fall, that Noah was a foreshadowing of Jesus. But what does Peter really mean? Here's the third interpretation. The third interpretation holds that Jesus, after his crucifixion, went and proclaimed victory and judgment over evil angels. So we know there are, there are angels, there are some good, and some have fallen. But in Genesis 6, there are some fallen angels, and this is where it gets bizarre. There are some fallen angels that it says that came and had sexual relations with women and were imprisoned because of their rebellion. So this view holds that Jesus descended into the prison that holds these fallen angels and announces his victory over the evil powers. Now you might be thinking, what in the world? I've never seen that. Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 6, and let's see if I'm actually telling the truth, because I know it sounds almost like a sci-fi novel. Genesis chapter 6, find that, notice what's before and what's after, because it's, it's important that it plays into this. It says in verse 1, And when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, which is often translated angels, the sons of God saw the daughters of man and saw that they were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and the days shall be a hundred and twenty. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and was also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children with them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of the man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot him out. I've created him on the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, the birds in the heavens, for I'm sorry that I even made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So right before the flood... We're told that there were some fallen angels, sons of God, that came and mixed with human daughters. So this interpretation holds that Peter is referring to the time when Christ went and he proclaimed his victory over death and the evil powers of the fallen angels. So personally, I, strangely enough, I believe that that is what Peter is talking about. I could get behind number two, I could get behind number three, but I believe Peter is talking about these fallen angels that Jesus went and proclaimed his victory over. But how do you get there? I think it'd be important this morning to talk about, here's what we do. Think of a bullseye. We, we've got a bullseye, and in the middle of that bullseye, we put 1 Peter chapter 3, 
verse 18. And we look at that, we think about it, we're trying to figure out what is he saying. Then we move to the next ring on the bullseye. And in that might be, well, what is before and what's right after that verse? So the second ring we, we see, that first ring, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. And it says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience awaited the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, man, you think you might be outnumbered a Christian at work. There were eight believers on the earth against you were brought safely through the water. So when you go back and you read about Noah and the flood in Genesis chapter 5 and 6 and 7, you read about these fallen angels. So I believe Peter has that in mind, and that's our first ring. So the next ring, the second ring is, well, what else did this author say? How, do we, how does that help us? Well, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Same author, same Peter. The next book, the next letter he says in chapter 2, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So it seems pretty similar. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So once again, he's got Noah in the background. A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the whole world of the ungodly. And so he's got the idea of these angels in mind again. And here's something we need to know about angels. Angels never get to experience redemption. Once an angel is fallen, he is fallen. And so we go to that second ring. What did this author have to say? Well, then our third ring is, well, what did someone else? Is this a thought of someone else in Scripture? What do they have to say about this? Well, we find, and once again, a bizarre reference in Jude. There's only one chapter, and chapter 1, verse 6, half-brother of Jesus, Peter and them would have known each other. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He was kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of the great day. I mean, it's almost as if they were writing word for word. So once again, it's another reference to fallen angels that are kept in a place until judgment of the great day. In fact, the Greek word for prison is often, is most used to refer to fallen angels, not human spirits. So the fourth ring, it's one that we can go to. We don't start there. We often don't spend a lot of time there. But I often ask the question, if I'm having confusion, what did the church, what does the church previously believe? What, is, what have they taught? So the fourth ring, I would say, is church tradition. Asking, what has the church for the last 2,000 years believed and taught? In church tradition, guess what? We find number two and number three. So not real helpful for me. But there's a fifth ring. And I even thought about, man, do I even mention this? Because it's one we often don't talk about. It is often not referenced. And it is one that we don't put a lot of confidence in. But it can be helpful. This circle is what we could often refer to as the extra-biblical books. These books that are not found in your Bible, the canon of Scripture, the 66 books that you have, these books are not a part of what we call that, the canon. We should never take a thought or a belief 
from an extra biblical book that is not taught in our canon of Scripture. We should never do it. But, on the same hand, on the other hand, all truth is God's truth. For instance, the Bible never talks about the world being round. Well, it didn't have to, but we know that the earth is round. And so there, even though it's true, all truth is God's truth. So, for instance, one of my favorite series of all time, the Chronicles of Narnia. Man, you could use that, and there's such a great parallel between Jesus and, and the lion, and he lays down his life for the people, and he is resurrected back to life, Aslan is. I mean, what a great picture of, of Jesus and what he has done. But we would never teach, I would never get up and just for a morning open up, you know, the, the silver chair and teach truth from that book. But there are things that are parallel that are truthful. So just, just for your amusement, just for your knowledge, I'll give you this, that the book of Enoch or Enoch is an extra biblical book that you find a very detailed account of, guess what, Genesis Six. So Enoch is the man for seven generations from Adam. You can read about him in Genesis chapter 5. It says that he, I think it says that he walked with God and then he was then taken up. And what happens is there's a writer that is writing as he is Enoch. I do not believe it is Enoch himself. It's written after Malachi about 300 years before Christ. And it says that what happens when I was taken up, I went to sit and to listen to what he calls the watchers. And the watchers are these fallen angels that came in Genesis 6 and spent time with these women and, and fathered children. And so we have an account in, in history of, of this being taught. So which one do I pick? For strangely enough, I, I believe Peter is saying that Jesus went and he proclaimed his victory over these fallen angels and over um, the evil that was there. But I have to ask the question, Peter... Why? Why why would you? I mean, you've been so straightforward. In fact, it's so strange. You turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Peter's talking about Paul, and he says, Paul says things that nobody understands. I'm thinking, that's a little bit calling the, the pot black here, Peter. But I go, Peter, why, why would you do this to us? Why would you give us things that, that can be so confusing? So this is what I wrote. Why would Peter include this? What is Peter's point of including such a difficult passage. I think Peter's point is that Jesus did not just die an undeserved death. He died a victorious death on behalf of unrighteous people. I think Peter's point is that Jesus' death did not just provide a way to forgive our sins, but also conquered over every single evil power and fallen angel. I think Peter's point is that there is a battle raging that we cannot fully see. There is a cosmic battle that has been going on for thousands of years. Jesus defeated the enemy by laying down his life and allowing evil to do anything it wanted to him. And then forgiving it. But the unexpected happened. He came back to life. But Satan and his legion of angels will not go away quietly. I think Peter's point is that those who are suffering unjustly need to know that the victory is already theirs through Jesus Christ. And I think Peter's trying to take our eyes up to that 10,000 foot view to say, listen, there is a battle going on. 
There are things that are happening in your life that are causing you to ask the questions, why is this happening in me? Does God even love me? Is God even there? And Peter is saying, listen, there is a battle going on. That Yes, you may feel the, the aftershocks of it, but the victory has already been won. And it is yours through Jesus Christ. And then he goes into another difficult section. Verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And this is often the verse that is used, that is quoted to teach that you must be baptized to be saved. It goes on to say, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is another one that there is a lot of debate about. When you read this verse, especially the first few words, when you read it, you would stop and you say, did Peter just say that baptism saves a person? And the answer is, it depends on what you mean by baptism. Here's what Peter is doing. Peter is connecting the ideas of baptism and Noah in the flood. And I don't know why Peter keeps going to Noah, but he does. But baptism and Noah in the flood. So look at verse 20. Back in verse 20 of chapter 3, it says that because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is the eight, were brought safely through the water. So the flood waters are representing God's judgment and fury against sin. In Genesis chapter 6, where we just were in verse 11, it says that God looked over the face of the earth and he saw the wicked and corruptness of man and that God tells Noah to build an ark because he is going to destroy all the wickedness that is around Noah. So Noah is actually saved through the water. Peter is saying that Noah's salvation was brought about by the same act of judgment that destroyed the wicked. So the same act, the flood's coming, was judgment on one group, but it was salvation on the other. Now, how can floodwaters be salvation for Noah? Well, so this flood comes, it's judgment on sin and on the human race, but the same flood saved Noah by removing the wickedness that was all around him and his family. That is how fully God saves he takes your heart that is a heart of stone that is against him and he turns it to a heart of flesh. He turns it to a heart that desires things of him. But then one day, we will be able to experience what it means to have all evil removed from us. Because when Noah and his family were in the ark and the flood subsided, they entered a new world that was free of sin and wickedness. And what Peter is doing, he's connecting baptism with the flood, where the baptism waters, like the flood waters, demonstrate that believers are rescued from the waters of judgment. That's what happens. Meaning, when I was baptized, I was showing a picture that God's wrath was coming from me, but Jesus Christ endured all that for me. So there are now for the waters of baptism no longer death for me, but they mean life. So in the days of Noah, there was a judgment coming. God was going to pour out his wrath on the people for their sins. And this included Noah and his family because they were sinful too. But God told Noah to build an ark and Noah responded by faith. 
and the ark that saved Noah and his family. In fact, Noah invited others to turn from their sins and join them, but they refused. So the same is true for us today. The wrath of God is coming because of our sin and our wickedness. But God has sent another ark, a better ark, His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And the only way to escape this coming judgment is to be inside of the new ark, Jesus. That we no longer have to fear that judgment is coming, that if you are safe inside the true ark, Jesus, that He has already, God has already poured out all of His wrath and punishment on His Son, even to the point of turning His, son, uh, turning his back on His Son. As Jesus suffered complete rejection from His Father. And you remember why? To bring you to God. So how do we know for sure? How do you know for sure that we are really safe inside the true? How do we know there's not something else? How do we know that we're not having the wool pulled over our eyes? How do I know? How can we be assured that Jesus didn't pay a 95% of the punishment for my sin that I then have to endure the rest? It's the beauty of verse 22. Look at the last verse. Who is Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subject to Him. I want you to notice three things. One, Jesus, He was raised back to life and is in heaven. If Jesus had not fully paid the price for your sins, do you know what would be true of him? He would still be dead. The second thing we can know for sure that is reassuring for us is that Jesus is at the right hand of God. That Jesus was completely obedient to God the Father. He did everything that God the Father asked of him, and he did it perfectly. And to show the Father's approval... Jesus gets placed in the highest seat of honor at God the Father's right hand. So you can know that your sins have been fully paid for because He was raised back to life. And you can know that He gave you His perfect obedience because He sits at the highest place of honor. And then the last one. He says that all angels, authorities, and powers are subject to to Jesus, meaning that Jesus reigns over every angel, good and evil, every authority, good and evil, every power, good and evil, and they were all subject to Him. So Jesus conquered sin and death to the point that we no longer have to fear. And so I thought about this morning, how do we, how do we take such a difficult, troublesome at times, deep passage that can cause our heads to hurt? How do we close? Well, I thought it would be good to have a, a moment just to think. And so, do this for me. If you would, just simply bow your heads and close your eyes, just so that you can allow some words to rest upon you. You know, in the days of Noah, God announced that He was going to judge the world by bringing a flood. And the only way to escape that judgment was to experience new life through an ark. God has also said there's a greater judgment coming one day. There's coming a day when every knee will bow before God. There's coming a day when the full punishment of sin will be given. And the only way to escape this punishment is through the true ark, Jesus Christ. 
So I have three questions. Do you believe there is a day of reckoning coming? Number two is, who will pay the price for your sin and your rebellion? It will either be you for all eternity, or you can trust that Jesus did it for you at the great exchange. The third one, are you in the true ark this morning? Meaning, who are you trusting and what are you trusting in? And, And if you would say, yes, I am in Jesus, then this morning, thank Him for giving you his perfect obedience in taking away your sin. But if not, I would ask that you ask God to ask him, is it true? Ask God to show you, is it true that Jesus came to save you? And I would just invite you this morning to get inside the true ark, Jesus. So if you will, look back to me. We were upstairs praying this morning and... Um, time we gather and you're all welcome to come and pray with us any morning about 8 45 Sunday morning and um but we are about to enter into I was telling you earlier just such an important time in the life of Christians in the church my wife prayed and um she's a much better prayer than I am and um she prayed this she prayed Father, I pray that we over the next two weeks as we get to Palm Sunday especially Holy Week that we would be broken, and that we would feel the weight of our sin. And I would say that's what the Good Friday service is for. It's to help us feel the weight of who we really are without Christ. But then the words were, but then, Father, help us to to know, help us to experience the grace that we know that all that has been dealt with. And what a great picture from Good Friday of feeling the weight of who we really would be But then coming Easter morning and celebrating who we are in Christ. And so allow those words to be with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for being with us. For taking difficult truths that are hard to fully understand. They're, they're, They're difficult to communicate. But Father, they are nonetheless true. And they are nonetheless there for our good. And so, Father, I don't really know what has been heard today. I know how you have spoken to me through this. But, Father, I pray that you have done that through all of us, that we would walk away with some truth that we would want to hide deep within our hearts. And when those moments of doubt and frustration and even suffering come, that we would be assured that the victory has already been won for us through your Son, Jesus. So, Father, be with us this week. Give us the courage to invite someone to come with us and to be a part of of this body, that we would be bold to share the hope that we have in you, that we would not shy away from moments to talk about the gospel and how you have changed our life. Father, it is in your Son's name and by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.